the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God not to bring adjustments or suggestions to our lives, but to bring transformation. I was on my phone a couple of days ago uh, looking for a new podcast to listen to. Ones I've listened to recently, I've just wanted something new, you know how it goes. And so I just started to uh, scroll through the options. You probably know this. There's about a gabillion options. We, we don't have a lack of information. But I do think in our churches, in our homes, in our cities, there is a lack of transformation. And we're going to open up our Bibles today in pursuit of transformation. And God can do that. You do not have to raise your hand, but who's got a home that needs the grace of God to, trans- to bring some real transforming power? Or your own life, your own soul, you need transforming power. I'm just going to go on and be up front. We're going to look at a man who uh, almost makes a really, really big mistake. It's David. And he almost makes a really big mistake on the motivation of being kind of consumed with anger. Now, I'm not the absolute expert on this, but I will say as a pastor, I see commonly there are four things that rule a human's heart. Those four things are lust, anger, guilt, or shame. When I sit with someone who really is seeking God and wants to talk, I've learned over time to investigate whether this person is really wrestling with Lust, anger, guilt, or shame. And oftentimes it's, it's all of them, right? But some of the biggest regrets you have or will have in life are the result of giving in to momentary, white-hot, unrighteous anger. And I just want you to know, when we talk about transformation, this is what I mean. You could have walked in the room, the strongest motivator in your life being unrighteous anger, and God can heal you from that. He can. Not through self-help or doing better and trying harder, but through the Holy Spirit bringing to bear in your life the grace of God. It's part of hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, is proclaimed, as we just saying, sometimes that's proclaimed by somebody who used to be ruled by anger. Hey, can I just refer back to the fighter verse, Galatians 2.20? I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me in the life I live. I live by faith in the Son of God. That was written by somebody who, at one time in his life, was absolutely consumed by anger. It was the motivating force in his life. And so in a moment, I'm going to invite you to stand. And the reason that we stand as a congregation is to show God uh, respect and reverence for his word. Uh, Hopefully it doesn't come across as some just this is what we do, you know. It's it's a reminder to us that what God says in his word is important and we want to listen. So with that said, I am going to invite you to stand. And we're going to read one verse from 1 Samuel 25. And then walk through it together. I just want you to see when David almost makes a bad decision. Somebody's going to help him in the passage. Ultimately God, but God's going to use somebody to help him. 1 Samuel 25, verse 13. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. 
and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword, and about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. In other words, David has just said, it's on, I'm about to take somebody out, and we'll put all those pieces together of what's going on there. So let's pray. Father, I want to ask you, because I, I believe you're a good father who wants to give good gifts to his children, and I simply ask, in Jesus' name, there's some men in the room, and their heart is ruled with anger, and you can deliver them. There's some women in the room, consumed with anger, and you can deliver them. There's some young people, some students in the room, so angry, sometimes they don't even know what to do, and you can deliver them. So we are asking for help from the Holy Spirit, not to bring slight momentary adjustment, but to bring transforming power. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes we're angry because we've just been through a lot. Do you know what I mean? I mean, we're in 1 Samuel 25. After months of stress, being treated unfairly. Now David's got a large number of people looking to him. So that's a lot of responsibility, all right? 400 coming with me, 200 watching the bag. That's 600 people that are looking for David to leadership. That can be stressful. David, as we've recently studied, has come out of uh, delivering a city, right, from the Philistines, risked his life, really put himself out there, and then that city turned around and said, no, nah, we're not really going to stand with you. Saul wants your life, and thank you for what you've done, but we're not going to protect you. First Samuel 25, verse 1, now Samuel died. So the, kind of the one person in David's life who could uh, encourage him that, yes, you really are God's anointed, right? I was there, I anointed you, now he's died. And it's like, this is a lot of stressors going on in David's life. And one of the effects of that is the anger is rising. Anybody able to relate? Stress at work, stress at home, stress in, and in light of all of what we just said, David has been trying to honor God, and David has been honoring God. He's been seeking God. He's been writing psalms, right? And, and it can be very difficult to seek to honor God when you feel like God is so slow to bring about what he promised to do. We have a saying, and I brought one here. Just walked outside, got it off the bush. Might not be able to see what that is. A little piece of straw, Right? We have a saying, the last straw, which is an abbreviated form of a story of the last straw that broke the camel's back, right? And the deal with that story is, is it's not so much the last straw, but the accumulation, right? In 1 Samuel 25, like the last straw gets put on David and he's, he's had enough. 
He basically says, I can't take it anymore, and I am going to lash out. It might be helpful for us to just admit that it feels to us that just about everyone <laughs> is one straw away from lashing out. And in David's case, we find that even the person who seeks God and wants to honor the Lord will have days when they say, let's strap on the sword. So I really want this chapter to be helpful to you as God intends it to be. So let's get a little bit of, bit of background. Let's read what's going on here. What is it that happens that David gets to the point where he says, all right, I'm, I've had enough. The way we might say it today is he's kind of snapped, right? So, First uh, Samuel 25, verse 1, Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in the house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. There was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have said, uh, all that you have, rather. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they have missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David. And they waited. And Nabal answered, David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to the men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. Okay, so what's going on here? A little bit of background will help. Walking through the narrative together. So this is what we're going to do. This is our plan. We'll walk through it. And then at the end of the sermon, or just about the end of the sermon, I'm going to have three questions that we'll answer quickly from the passage. But here's the background. In those days, there's no standing army, really. There's no standing police force. There's no stable security forces. So groups like David and his men would provide security and defense for shepherds and their flocks. You know, your, uh, your, your job is such that you're kind of on the move and you graze a little bit and then you graze a little bit. And so David and his men would protect these shepherds from the attacks of thieves who would overrun an area. They would steal livestock, assault villages. I mean, a pretty violent time. So according to the customs of the day, when a group had protected shepherds, as David had done, when the sheep were to be sheared, it was common for the owner of the animals to set aside a portion of the profit and give to those who had protected his sheep while they were in the fields. So we tracking together, right? That's what was done. It was a bit like 
tipping a waiter. How are y'all doing on that, by the way? Kind of controversial phrase these days, tipping, right? There's no written law saying you had to do it. But had David not done what he did, the prophets would not have been what they were. And so it was a way of showing gratitude for a job well done. That's what's going on, and you just read it. The, the, uh, um, David heard, verse 4, in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. All right, so all right. So what does it say to David? It's payday. We've fulfilled our responsibility of protecting you. Now you are going to show uh, the gratitude and, and thankfulness. So that's what happened. How would you describe Nabal's response to David's messengers, right? And then think of the report here in verse 15 from one of Nabal's workers. Verse 15, the men were very good to us. We suffered no harm. We did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both day and night, or by night and by day, all the while while we were keeping the sheep. Right? So that's the report. They did a good job. They're honorable men. Nabal's response was not just no. It was loaded with insult. Who is David? And you see the dig? Right? Many servants these days who are breaking away from their master. I can't even keep up. Right? So a number of conflicts going on in the passage. One of the hallmarks of your growth and maturity in Jesus is how you handle conflicts. Your life's not going to be conflict-free, so let's get the, let's get the uh, correction. If you honor and love Jesus, it doesn't lead to a conflict-free life. It's a matter of how you handle the conflict. So a couple of conflicts. One's implied in verse number three. Some of you might have raised your eyebrows at it. Let's look at it. The name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful. How many of you are married to a beautiful and discerning person? The softball, my friends, right? But the man was harsh and badly behaved. How many of you are married to someone who's harsh and badly behaved? It's conflict, isn't there? It's conflict. Harsh, badly behaved. Nabal, his name actually means fool. It's conflict in a marriage. It's a conflict in what we might call an employer-employee relationship. The expectations David had are wrecked. His men are counting on him without the payment. They are in a dire situation. And then there's one other conflict, what we might call internal conflict. That might be the most important one, by the way. David is now conflicted within himself. He has proven himself patient, kind, faithful for so many chapters, and now we get Nabal. Conflict in marriage, conflict at work, conflict within. David's dealing with anger and frustration, which can be powerful motivators. And if you're not careful, become the most powerful motivators in your life. I was talking about trying to find a 
new podcast to listen to. I'm, I try to walk pretty regularly and walk around the neighborhood. And so, so I was doing that and uh, listening to, uh, to a podcast when I walked by a house that when I was 14, 15, 16 years old, uh, the owners of the house at that time very graciously allowed me and my friends to come over and play basketball just about every day after school. And it was almost like where I spent all the afternoons of my 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old self. And as I walked by, this memory popped into my head. Oftentimes, we would play three-on-three, make it, take it, to 15. Those were just sort of the ground rules. I don't know if that's how it's still done today, but back back in those days, that's how we played. And and there were six of us, seven of us, eight of us. And uh, we'd play three-on-three, and two of the guys in the group were just better basketball players than everybody else. Let me just far and away. I was not one of them. My self-righteousness, I would like to explain that I was the youngest in the group, right? So when I was 13, they were 15. When I was 14, they were 16. But I was in no way, shape, or form the best in the group. And we just kind of had this standing rule that these two guys were going to be on opposite teams. They couldn't be on the same team or it wouldn't even be competitive and it wouldn't be a lot of fun. But one day, they decided... We'd like to be on the same team, and so they were. So it was the two best guys and another guy, and then I was on the other team. And I just had a day, my friends. I don't know how to explain it. Every shot I put up, swish, swish, swish. We are playing to 15, and we get up 13 to 4. And the guy who really was the best player... He drove to the basket and kind of wildly threw up a shot that bricked. And I grabbed the rebound and I said out loud, he was out of control. That's what I said. Other guy heard it. And I saw his disposition change. So he said, I'll guard Brandon. (laughs) So I dribbled. Fade away. Shot it up. Swish. Game point. We don't make the next shot, and the talented guy gets the ball and uh, makes the first shot, makes the next shot, 13-9, or 14-9, 14-10, 14-11, 14-12, got to win by two. They get another, he makes it again, and then kind of right in my face, shoots it, drills it, they win. And when that ball went to the net, he had followed it through, and was kind of waiting for it to come through the net, and it dropped, and and he turned around, and he, as hard as he could throw the ball, he threw it at my chest. And he said, out of control, huh? Now, we're accustomed, for the most part, of always getting along. This was a rare incident. On that day, when that happened, I didn't say anything. 30 some odd years later on that neighborhood walk I said a lot of things do you know what I'm saying I mean I know this is crazy I know this is crazy on my neighborhood walk this is so silly but this is how we are in my mind I made the winning shot And then I, this is so crazy. I began in my mind to replay that whole scene and what I would have said had I made the winning shot. And y'all, I walk about a mile, podcast still playing, hadn't heard a word of it. Isn't it crazy 
anger, frustration. I mean, can we just talk for a moment how minuscule a conflict that was? But 30 some odd years later, it was like it had just happened. Friends, that's illogical. But it's anger and it's real. There's a bit of insanity that goes to anger. We don't act out of our right mind. And sometimes we end up carrying for years the weight of it. Go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis. Not the very beginning, but close to the beginning in Genesis 4. And God draws near to Cain. Remember what God said? Cain, do you do well to be angry? I know you're angry. But do you do well to be angry? The uh, soul of Cain is consumed with anger. And God draws near and says, do you do well? Friends, when we are acting on our angriest impulses, we need somebody to intervene. Enter wise and discerning Abigail. Let's read these verses. We're going to read a right good bit, but I want you to see what Abigail does. Verse 14, one of the young men told Abigail, right? He knew he had to find somebody. He, he's aware of the dire situation. Nabal the fool had any idea how uh, tenuous the situation is. So the young man goes and tells Abigail, Nabal's wife. Now we read in this report already in uh, thirteen fourteen about the men. So verse 17, now therefore know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his uh, house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Wow. Abigail, she's discerning, and she doesn't say, this is not my problem. Can I just give you a practical application? So much of what needs to be done in the kingdom of God is not done because we've concluded, I didn't start this, it's not really my issue, and it's not my problem. But friends, praise God Almighty, that was not how he responded to us in Christ Jesus. Jesus helps bring reconciliation to situations he himself did not create. Do you know what I'm saying? You'll have a very... You have very little fruit in your life if your approach to life is not my problem. Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seas of parched grain and 100 clusters of raisins and 200 uh, cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. And she did not tell her husband, Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, right? David, we know what David's uh, charging to do. And she met them. In other words, she's intervening. Go between. Now, David had said, surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow had in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. He ain't lying, right? Verse 22. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. But you do see that David is starting to sound and act a whole lot like Saul. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face, bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. 
Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But your servant did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with his own, your own hand, now let your enemies and those who seek to do you evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let the present, let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you as long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out. As from the hollow of a sling, if you're starting to think to yourself, sounds like Abigail knows a thing or two about David, you're right. He is to be the king. And that's, she's pleading with him on the basis of God's promises for his life. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all that the good has been spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord taking vengeance himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord then you remember your servant. So we got just about the whole story. So let's go to three questions real quick that we can learn some things from the passage. First question is this, what are the marks of the foolish? What are the marks of the foolish? So Nabal is the fool, as the name literally means fool, but really the connotation is kind of in line with Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so it's a bit of an overt rebellion. Nabal is saying, here's my name. I'm the one who doesn't need God. I'm the one who is uh, strong enough with no need for the Lord. Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. Psalm 14.1, anybody want to venture a guess who wrote Psalm 14? It would be David. So, so Nabal's attitude in life is, I don't really need God. That's for the weak people, right? Sometimes you'll hear that. Christianity's a crutch. It's just what people who can't uh, handle their own lives for themselves, they, they look to some uh, fairy in the sky, as I've uh, been told or heard. It's a lot of self-exaltation going on. So I'm going to give you three real quick marks of the foolish Mark number one is they live without reference to God. They live without reference to God. It's it's not like uh, they go around saying, I don't believe in God all the time. It's like they live their life as if uh, if he doesn't matter. The foolish person doesn't even care to get in a discussion of if there is a God or not. Their heart is more set on what does it even matter if there is, right? The subtlety for us, I know where we are this morning when probably, you know, most of us in the room would say, that's not how I approach life. I don't, I don't say there is no God, but, but you can be a, what I might call a functional fool. You say that you believe there is a God, but then the way that you treat people or your business dealings or uh, uh, the way that you respond to conflict, it's as if you don't believe in God. So the first mark is is living without any reference to God. Second, there's a complete lack of gratitude. 
And we can kind of put the thoughts together. Nabal really thinks all he has is because of himself. Now, it does tell us that he is wealthy. He's very rich. 3,000 goats, or I'm sorry, 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And, and he probably does have a bit of business acumen. But friends, according to the scripture, the mark of a successful man, a successful woman, is not how much stuff you've accumulated. It can better be seen in your attitude towards God and how you treat other people. Unfortunately, unfortunately, we get fooled into believing that it's more important how much money I acquire than how I am generous to the Lord and other people. Not all fools are wealthy, but according to the scripture, it doesn't seem to help very much. Do you know what I mean? Often in Scripture, foolish people are described as people of great material wealth. Jesus told a parable about a rich fool. One of the worst decisions ever made in in the Gospels is made by the rich young man. Why is that? It's because wealth and material possessions can serve as God replacements. Money and God make the same promises. You've got to check yourself on this. Because if you were asked, what is something that you could have that would make your life so much better you live in a culture that the quickest answer is a whole lot more money. But can you pause and ask, is that true? And may we have grace to say, what would make my life so much better is a whole lot more direction and leading and indwelling and empowering of the Holy Spirit. You know that money and possessions have replaced God in your life when you're greedy for more at the expense of others instead of being gratefully generous. So what are the marks of the foolish? They live without reference to God. It's a complete lack of gratitude. And third, they live with a complete lack of awareness of their own foolishness and what the future holds. Nabal has absolutely no understanding of how dangerous a position he is in. The parable that Jesus did tell about the rich fool concludes with the judgment of God. You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. So those are the marks of the foolish. No reference to God, no gratitude, no awareness of the danger their soul is actually in. Second, now what are the marks of the wise and discerning? And we can look at what Abigail does to demonstrate uh, those marks. What can we learn from her in the passage? So three quick things on that. Number one, she acted quickly. See it? She hears the report. Verse 18, Abigail made haste. The wise and discerning know when something needs to be done now. Sometimes the enemy of your soul is not trying to get you to say no. He's just trying to get you to say, I'll do it later. The wise and discerning don't put off decisions until tomorrow that need to be made today. I have an interesting relationship with the concept of time. I don't know what it is. I think it's just the way that I was born. I'm hardwired to know what time it is. All the time. I mean that literally. I'm always aware of what time it is. I always think to myself, well, uh, for the next 30 minutes I'm going to do this. And if I drive here, that's going to take 12. I'm always kind of calculating. And I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm sure there's a name for this condition. 
But the wise and discerning always know what time it is spiritually. A wise parent is able to look at their children and say, we need to talk about this now. A wise husband is able to say, we need to pray about this now. By God's grace, a wise pastor would be able to say, here's what's potentially ahead of us, and here's what we have to do now. They know when things need to be done. You know, I love to read history, and I read a book one time that that says, if you investigate all the military campaigns that ended in disaster and traced it all the way back to what actually went wrong and what was the pivotal moment, it was that somebody in leadership was too late, too late to make the call, too late to send them there, too late, too late, too late. Look at verse 25, verse 18. Made haste, made haste. Is there something that you need to do and you need to do today? Second, the wise work for the good of others even when those others don't appreciate it. Everything Abigail does on behalf of Nabal is done without him knowing any of it. So friends, we are called, we are not called rather, to work for the good of people who appreciate it. We are called to work for the good of others for the glory of God. God has done a thousand things for your good today. And where you sit this morning, you're probably aware of about three of them, right? Maybe four. (laughs) And then a third mark of uh, the wise and discerning is Abigail focused on the promises of God and reminded David of them. That's what she says in verse 29. If men rise up and pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the land, I'm sorry, in the care of the Lord your God and the lives of your enemies. He shall sling out as from a hollow of a sling. That is a reference back to David's slingshot with Goliath. She is saying, remember where you've been, remember where you are, remember where you will be. That is the point of a Sunday, by the way, for a church family. Let's remember where we were. Let's know where we are. Let's know one day where we will be. When people seek you for counsel, are you quick to share Scripture and God's Word? So often, in our fits of anger and frustration, we forget that we belong to the Lord We represent him and what his promises are about our future. This is one of the clear ways for you not to be ruled by anger. You have to remember. Not just, we've all all got the stuff, right? Count to ten, count to a hundred, count to a thousand. Third, last question for this morning. How can we see, seek <clears throat> to be governed by self-control rather than driven by anger? I, I want to ask for just a moment, just to not be in a rush for a moment. Me with my hardwired sense of time. You have, in your life right now, a few really precious relationships. Your dear friends, children, your grandchildren, spouse. What 
would they say of you? Anger is a real motivating issue in your life. Sometimes we need counselors outside of ourselves. Do you know what I mean? And then most importantly, what would the Holy Spirit say? You see, you see here that David, David would have been able to line up some pretty strong rationale for strapping on his sword and going. What he's been through, what he's endured, what God has and hasn't done in his life at this point. So how can we be governed by self-control rather than driven by anger? I sat with that question for a little bit and kind of came to this conclusion. Without the help of the Holy Spirit, you will be controlled by anger. It might not be red-hot anger that's explosive. It might be ice-cold anger like an iceberg. You've just withdrawn. Because you've really been through some stuff. So, so if we are ever to be governed by self-control, we're going to be governed, directed, motivated by someone other than ourselves. So I need you to hear on the basis of Scripture, this is not the message I'm giving to you. You need to get your act together. That is not my message. My message is we're not able to. If you're not led by the Holy Spirit, you will give and do to others what you have concluded they deserve. Now, I caution you on that because we're not always the best judge of what somebody deserves. But I also appeal to you that that is not what you are called to. Have this mind in you, which is yours, in Christ Jesus, who though very the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a servant and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. Do you believe and trust that the name of Jesus is better than the name revenge? Aren't you grateful that God has not given to you what you deserve. I want you to hear a scripture. Remember, we want to build our lives on what God says in his word. Now just hear it, believe it, trust it. When you heard the gospel of your salvation and believed it, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. What that verse just said is the mark of authenticity of a follower of Jesus is the Holy Spirit is now in you. It's sealed by the Spirit. It's a reference back in those days when a king would write a letter, he would seal it with a signet ring so you would verify that really came from him. And so what Paul is saying is that the, the uh, guarantee that you are a follower of Jesus is the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. And the Holy Spirit will do in your life what Abigail has done for David. The Spirit will intervene. The Spirit will remind you of God's promises. The Spirit will remind you of your identity. The Spirit will remind you of the cross and the empty tomb, that you are freed from living according to the flesh and you have been raised to life. The Spirit will help you deal with some Nabals in your life. Are you led by the Holy Spirit or by the flesh, by anger. 
David has Abigail intervene. Verse 32, David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you. You have kept me from this day from blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand. For surely, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, Unless you had hurried to come to meet me, truly by morning there had been left to Nabal so much as one male. Now, we're going to conclude for this morning. Nabal, by the way, dies before the chapter is over. And then I do think I want to highlight to you that Abigail ends up becoming another wife to David. So the Old Testament gives us pictures of Jesus in some verses. And then it gives us pictures of why we need Jesus in others, and sometimes they're right there together, right? David is a picture of Jesus. He's not Jesus, amen? And we'll see that David now, and this is kind of how life is, makes a wise decision one moment and a foolish decision the other. You might be able to relate to that. That's why we need the real king, Jesus, to rescue us. Hey, I'm going to conclude, uh, and we're going to enter a time of response. And... Um, this is how it happens in, in my life sometimes, and maybe you'll be able to relate to this as well. I'll open the Bible, I'll read, I'll prepare, I'll think, and I'll say, yeah, that's a, that's a good message for my soul. But then no transformation comes. Do you know what I mean? I don't know if this happened in your life. Sometimes God says, here's some things that you really need to be delivered from anger is what we've been focused on today. So I'm going to pray in a moment, and what I'm going to ask to do, uh, ask God to do, is that His Holy Spirit would really draw near to bring conviction, clarity, and help. You know, this is a great thing about the Holy Spirit. He doesn't ever show up and say, "You got an anger problem." Most of us who have an anger problem, we kind of know we have an anger problem. Do you know what I mean? He says, there's an empty tomb. There's a risen king. He's going to help, and the church is going to be in this together. One of the hardest things for an angry person to do is admit, I'm a really angry person. We're going to pray together and we just let the Holy Spirit lead. So there might be some husbands in the room and say, man, I've been harsh. And you're going to take time to speak to your wife today and say, I'm asking God to help me and change me. Might be some children in the room. and are going to go to your parents and say, I need God to help me. You might be some friendships that, man, it's gotten tense. But you, uh, I was always helped years ago when I, when I uh, talked about relationships that need to be restored, who takes the first step? And the answer was given to me, whoever wants to be most like Jesus, right? (laughs) Take the first step. Well, let's stand together. We're going to pray together. Let's pray. Father, you really can do a transforming work way down deep 
So I pray for, uh, for those of us in the room this morning that really our life, we, got, we, have, we have got the sword strapped on. We are ready to go. Angry. David, in this passage, he really has. He really has been done wrong. And it's the most recent been done wrong in a series of been done wrongs. So, Father, I pray for those of us in the room that that's our reality. That your Holy Spirit would bring help and hope to bear in our real lives, in our real homes, in this real church, in this real city. Thank you for a trustworthy counselor who is the Lord. Remind us now of uh, your promises and give us grace now to seek you and respond to you uh, in a way that is led of the Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name.